0: summer we are moving through a series of a variety of topics and just to note next week we are going to begin a topic on the the topic of death what happens when we die Uh, (coughs) very interesting topic I'm actually learning some things you know you read in the old testament about Sheol and what, what kind of place was that and And David talks about going to Sheol. And where did did David not go to heaven when he died? And is there such a thing as purgatory? And can you speak with people who have died? There are many, many questions around death. And the next couple of Sundays, we're going to walk through and see what the Word of God has to say. And there's a lot the Scripture tells us about what we can expect when we die and all of the questions that come up. Topic. I think you'll find it very, uh, I think you'll find it very interesting and very helpful. I want to just begin by talking for a moment about losing things. You know, we all lose a lot of things over our lives. At least I have lost a lot of things over my life. I think I've probably lost more things over my life than the average person. Keys, wallets. Uh, contacts, glasses, gloves. Oh, I'm terrible with gloves. I've never made it through one year with a pair of gloves. Jackets, like nice winter jackets, especially spring jackets that you take on and off when you go into a restaurant. Cups, pens, receipts, rings. And then there are the more serious things that we can lose in our lives. Uh, like losing your way in a bad part of Chicago, Uh, losing your vision in the fog when you're driving down the road, Uh, losing your passport when you're overseas, losing a job, losing your health, losing a home. Probably the worst thing in the world is to lose a child. Some of you know what that's like. And one day in the end, Many of us will lose our minds. This morning, I know as we think about losing things, there are some serious concern, concerns for people about, you know, people have lost their homes this last year. People have lost their jobs. People have lost all of their retirement income that they worked for so hard. However, I want to talk this morning about, by far, the most dangerous thing that you can lose the most dangerous thing an individual, a person, uh, the church, or a nation can lose. And that is to lose the fear of God. And this is an extremely sobering topic for us. If you're not aware of that in our day, you need to be. Now, when we talk about the fear of God, what what does that mean? We have phrases like, put the fear of God in him, and we read through the Bible, and, and John tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. There is no fear in love. And then we, we go over we read Peter right next door, and Peter says, uh, "Let us live out our lives in reverent fear." So we find these you know we find one verse that says we're not to fear, and then the next verse says we need to live in the fear of God. And so what what does that really mean? Well there are two words in the Bible and again our English language you know because because it does not always delineate between these two is it, not as helpful as what was originally written but the word that we have fear is really translate a couple of different words one is I'll, I'll just put them up this would be the English uh, the English how we would spell them it's uh, servile which is means like this is like that of a slave to a master and this has the interpretation of things which we would you know dread or things that would create terror in our hearts so the bible talks about uses that word fear in a variety of contexts then we have a second word which is filial fear and that is like a son to a father and the definition of that fear means a, a reverent awe or a high level of respect. So we have these two words for fear. Now the classic interpretation of this is that when the Bible calls us to fear God, it's talking about the second one, You know, filial fear, it's, a, it's reverence and awe for God, and that the you know, the fear that we're not to have is the, is the first one. And, and to some extent, I would agree with that. But I think that in our relationship with God, there is a place for, for both of them. And let me illustrate it in a very simple way, but let, let me use this as an illustration. I'm going to show you a picture. Uh, are you af- is that something to be afraid of? Okay, that's a stove. Okay? Typically you would walk into an appliance store and you wouldn't really you wouldn't be afraid of that. Let me show you just a second picture. Now, do you have any if I were to ask you, is that something to be afraid of, would you respond any differently? Well, here's what you would say. You would say if used for the appropriate purposes, the stove is nothing to be afraid of. However, the stove can kill you. A stove can hurt you. You need a serious respect for a gas stove in your house or an electric stove. I remember as a kid, I had this, I don't know why I did this, but every time I walked through the kitchen, maybe I was just daring, I would go through and I would tap the burners on the stove. (coughs) And I remember one time my mother had just turned off the electric burner. And I had these, I had a pattern of the circular... Uh, electric burner on my hand and I discovered that what can be very useful can also be dangerous. I have worked on stoves. If you don't unplug stoves, it may kill you. And so, on the one hand, you know, we, we don't fear a stove. On the other hand, if we don't respect the stove, We might be in terror of what could happen. And you know what? That would probably be appropriate. In Matthew 10, Jesus is talking. And it's an interesting verse there. Matthew 10, beginning with verse 28. Listen to what he says. We read these words. Do not be afraid. There it is. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay? And then he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father? And even the very hairs of your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. So, interesting, in this verse, God is saying, you know, be afraid of the one that can send your soul to hell, but, but don't be afraid because God cares for you. And so I think what it's saying is, there is nothing to fear in God. But if you're misusing God, or you're disrespecting God, or, or there are things that you we should be in terror of, when it comes to God and Jesus' that is, that don't take lightly God because this is the one, yes, will save you and protect you and be your father, but this is also the one that can send your soul to hell. And so I, I think there's a appropriate use for each of those. We know that with our kids. If you tell your kids something and they go behind your back to do it, you want them to be afraid. You want them to be thinking, man, I'm going to get in trouble. And so... I think we can understand both uses of this word. So let's look at the text this morning, the main text, and it's in Proverbs chapter 2. It is written by Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. Most people agree, he was the wisest man that ever lived. He was about 17 years of age. He was a teenager. When God came to him, imagine this if you're a teenager, and God comes to you and says, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want, one thing I will give it to you. Just imagine as a 17-year-old being given that option. And so Solomon is, is given that option, and Solomon thought about it, and he knew that he was going to inherit. He had, In fact, he had just inherited the kingdom from, from David, and he's thinking about this task. And so he he says, you know what I would like? I, I would like wisdom. God, if you would give me a supernatural wisdom so I would know how to lead the people. And when we read that story, God was so pleased that he, he said, you know, because you didn't ask for fame and you didn't ask for wealth, but you asked for wisdom, God said, I'm going to give you all of it. Fame. Fame. Wealth and wisdom, and so God did that, and in terms of wealth, uh, about two three years ago on the Discovery Channel, they did a they looked at Solomon. They were estimating his net worth. You know, people we do that with people today. They figured the net worth in today's economy of Solomon was about eight hundred and fifty billion dollars. Probably about ten times as wealthy as the most wealthy man in the world today. And so in the area of wisdom, God blessed him as well, many times over what the average person had. And so we have all of the Proverbs and all that Solomon wrote. And he wrote it with amazing wisdom. So here he is, chapter 2, and he's writing to his son. Imagine... your dad was the wisest man in the world and so here Solomon is writing to his son and he says my son if you accept my words and store up my commands within you turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure okay so that's Those first four verses. Saying son, he's basically saying, Son, if you know, if if you will pursue understanding and insight and wisdom, if if you will seek to understand the truth about how life is designed and and how you are to live. And this is all according to when Solomon talks about this, and as you read on the book, he's assuming that this. Searching is a searching after God's wisdom. He says, in fact, if you look for it like you would look for treasure, then, he says this is what will happen, verses 5 and 6, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth comes knowledge of and understand. So here he said, "What you will discover if you, if you, if you do this, is that you will discover the fear of God. You will understand what it truly means to fear God, and there are incredible blessings for those who fear God. For those who don't fear God, it is legitimate to live in terror and dread, with that servile." kind of fear and so this would be a, a summation here of of this text and that is that the fear of god would be defined as a a loving reverence that includes submission to his commands and his words a loving submission or a loving reverence that that Includes submission to his commands and his words. Those who seek this in their life need not live in fear. Those that don't seek this in their life should live in fear. And so whenever we are moving away from obedience, we are in essence putting our hands on the stove. Here's what Solomon is telling us then, that fear of God follows our pursuit of the knowledge of God. In other words, when you seek God and you understand who God is, then you develop a fear for God. You will not develop a fear for God in a vacuum. You will develop a fear for God out of a response to seeing who God is. Every man that you'll ever read about in the Bible, that ever got a glimpse of God, experience that incredible awe of God. You know, that's the, the this this true fear of God. If you want to get a sense of that, it's it's like when you go out at night and you look up into the sky. And we've all done this and you you look at the moon and you look at the stars and you look at the expanse and you go, "Man, this this God that put this there is so big." I don't know if anything does it to me like that, but you look in the sky and you go, this this God is so powerful. He is so big. What is and you and almost say as a psalmist said, What is man that thou art mindful? Of? God that you would even know me. And and God could just like squash me like a bug and you know, it is it is just that sense of reverent awe of, of this God. And this fear that he could utterly destroy me, and yet he loves me. And so God is calling us to fathom that amazing truth. So how how do we think about this in terms of our day? I'd like to spend the rest of our time here talking about that. How does this apply in our day? It is my belief that over the last 50 years, we have seen an incredible acceleration and loss, acceleration of the fear of God and a loss of the fear of God. Alarmingly so. You know, the classic question that we hear in our day, and you hear it from in our culture, and and this just illustrates the point. Any culture that has lost the fear of God is continually asking this question and pointing their finger at God and saying, if God is such a loving God, why is there so much suffering in the world? I mean, that's the number one question that people have of God. If God is so good, why is this happening to me? And, you know, that, that's the wrong question. That just illustrates the lack of fear of God in our day because if we feared God we wouldn't ask the question why do bad things happen to me we would ask the question why does anything good happen to me as sinful as we are before the holiness of God why does anything good happen to me why does God allow me to live for one more minute why doesn't God destroy us all Right now, at this moment, that is the response of those who fear God. But no, we have our rights before God. God owes us certain things. God is responsible to do certain things in our lives. And it is simply a sign that we don't understand who God really is. What we see being lived out in our country right now is described to a T in Romans 1. This is a description of a people and a nation who are abandoning the fear of God. And I'm going to just take a moment. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me to Romans 1. This, this to me, is so clear in terms of a commentary on our day. Here is the progression of away from the fear of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So here's the first thing that happens in a culture is there is a denial, an intentional denial of the greatness and authority of God. An intentional denial of the greatness and authority of God. That's what he's saying here. He's saying God has has shown them His greatness. It is, it's been made manifest to everyone since creation they've been able to see these incredible qualities of God but man is suppressing that truth man is denying the truth of the greatness of God and you see the fear of God comes from seeing God and so when you no longer see God you begin to lose the fear of God we see that in verse 21 here's the second step for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So when man ceases to see God, then he ceases to honor God or glorify God or give thanks to God. I remember the first promise keepers I ever went to. I've shared this before, but I, you know, you have those certain moments in your life you'll never forget. I remember standing on the top floor of the Metrodome and they were calling all of the pastors at that time to come down and and they were going to pray for them. I remember looking out at 65,000 people in the Metrodome and I remember this thought just coming into my mind. This is why we should be building stadiums. What if we built stadiums to gather as the people of the earth on Sunday afternoon to worship God? Instead of throw pigskins around the field, so we see here that there's a that there is a denial of the greatness of God, and then as a result, there is an God is not glorified or He's not thanked. Verse twenty two and twenty three, we see what happens as a result of that. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, man began to worship other things. It can be anything. If you take God, if you you no longer see God and you no longer glorify and thank God, now God's being taken out of the picture and now you begin to worship other things because you no longer have God to worship and man will worship something. And ultimately, ultimately, man will worship himself. The last step, verse 24, says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the graying of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. He lists a whole bunch of things there, not just sexual immorality, sexual impurity. He talks right there about, I mean, you can see it so clear. Uh, You know, even, he says, because of this, God gave them over. Uh, Women exchanging natural relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoning natural relationships with women. They were inflamed with lust for one another. On and on. And and then he goes on and lists a whole bunch of things. Men are God-haters, insolent, proud, boastful, disobedience, everything that happens in a culture when God turns man over to his own wisdom. And I think that's where we are, to be honest with you. And it's sobering. It's extremely sobering to read this commentary and to see your nation in this commentary, we see it in our day. Uh, we see the whole, and this issues in our—it's before us all the time. This legalization of uh, same-sex marriage, the whole thing, all of the sexual perversions that are going on. And so we see here just so clearly what is happening in our day. The wisdom of God is replaced by the wisdom of man. So what does God do? I mean what what does God do in that situation? Well he can he can sit back and simply watch us self destruct, which we will. Family will continue to break down. Things will continue to go farther and farther away from God's design. Man's wisdom will destroy. Ultimately, will destroy himself. Or God can do what he did time and time and time again in the Old Testament and what he does today, and that is this, that God will bring judgment upon his people. He will allow judgment to awaken people's need to return to God's wisdom and again live in the fear of God. You see this cycle over and over again with the people of God in the Old Testament. God blessed. They forgot God. They took their eyes off. They forgot to glorify God. They began to raise themselves up. God brought judgment and pain and difficulty, and eventually the people became so desperate they cried out for God's wisdom again because theirs wasn't working. In Isaiah 57, we find 57 verses 11 through 13. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you've been false to me and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? Is it not because I have been silent that you do not fear me? So God is saying, you know, the reason you have been drifting away from me is because I have been silent. I have you have you have gotten away with it. I have not brought discipline and judgment into your life, he is saying. I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. And when you cry out for help, let your idol collection of idols save you wind will carry them all off in a mere breath will blow them away so God is saying here when, when God remains silent and God grants his grace and patience to us eventually we continue to drift farther and farther away it does not mean that God is not aware it does not mean that God is even necessarily pleased but eventually God will act We've seen him act with the flood. We saw the fire and brimstone in Sodom. We see him using enemies. We see God using calamities, famines, earthquakes, those kinds of things. But there's something very subtle that God does to reveal his judgment. And this is how you can tell that a nation is under judgment. Because when God decides to judge a nation, what he simply does is removes his wisdom from that people. And when God takes his wisdom out, People will bring judgment upon themselves. The withdrawal of God's wisdom from a nation is a sign that they have lost the fear of God. And judgment has begun. Those are sobering thoughts as we think about the country in which you know you and I. We see this happening before our very eyes. Revival is really the only hope for America, and you know most of us are not aware. I don't have a lot of time uh, this morning. Let me just let me share a couple things with you. This was a this was a paragraph that just I think so clearly describes this progression. It kind of reiterates what we just went through. Let me just read it. Whenever the fear of God is lost, you can be sure the greatness of God has been lost. And whenever man loses the greatness of God, he unfortunately finds the greatness of man. And the more man finds his own greatness, the less he acknowledges God until finally God becomes despised or lost to his consciousness. And once respect or God consciousness is lost, Man becomes the ultimate. And when man becomes the ultimate, he loses any sense of accountability or ability to be convicted of sin. And if God does not break through that, and if God cannot bring about again a conviction of sin, it is the beginning of the end for that nation and for that people. Now, God has intervened. And uh, let, let me just take, as we... The last three, four minutes here. God has moved in, in our nation and in nations of the world in the past. Uh, in the wake of the American Revolution, back in the late 1700s, I mean, things were in, in terrible condition. We are told that out of a population of 5,300,000 were confirmed drunkards. <clears throat> Alcoholics. 15,000 people were dying each year. So profanity was the most shocking of any kind. Women were afraid to go out. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. Uh, The churches were just wondering if they could keep open their doors. Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote, The church was too far gone to ever be redeemed. That's what he said of the church. The poll was taken at Harvard they discovered not one believer in the entire student body. At Princeton, there were two believers they found in the body. At Princeton, they held mock communions. They burned the Bible. Christians had to literally meet in in secret back in those days. And then God sent a revival during that time. It began through William Carey over in England. And there was an urgent prayer that went out to pastors all across the United States to pray. And this is how revival always comes. You know, it's when people get so desperate the only thing left to do is pray. And so people began to pray and this revival began to to move out and it moved through into uh, the U.S. and it, it moved out into Kentucky. And the summer that revival came to Kentucky they held a communion service there and 11,000 people attended that communion service out of that movement the whole modern missionary movement came it was out of that the that abolition of slavery came it was out of that that the Sunday school movement started Bible societies of, of every sort and and God did an amazing work there after about 50 years as often happened things began to deteriorate again and fall back and in the between around 1860 1860 uh, we found that that God began to move again. It was a serious time in our country. Our country was divided in terms of slavery. And it began with, in a a Dutch Reformed church in Manhattan, six people showed up for prayer. The next week, 14, then 20. Pretty soon, the church was packed. Pretty much, it went to other churches. And they pretty much found by, that's happened in... uh, Within one year, they found that every church and every public hall in New York, this is New York, just imagine, every church, every public hall, every day, every noon, packed with people praying. And when I read through these, I realize how far we have gone. It says people began to get, get converted. Ten thousand people a week in New York City alone were being converted. So the Baptists had so many people being converted, they were, they were cutting holes in the ice, and and baptizing people. There were so many. Listen to this. I know Don's here from our children's ministry at the Congregational Church. Uh, an individual came and asked if he could teach Sunday school, and the superintendent said, I'm sorry, we have 16 teachers on a waiting list to teach our Sunday school. The young man said, well, I want to do something. He said, well, why don't you start a class? He said, how do I start a class? Get some boys off the street, take them in the country for a month, and when you get them under control, bring them back and start a class. That's what he did. His name was D.L. Moody. came out of that movement. And so God began to work. We find churches in Chicago just expanded incredibly. More than a million people were converted to God in one year. I of a population of 30 million. One in every 30 people were converted in one year. And so the revival went on. In the early 1900s, we see there was a- another revival again. People again began to pray, and we find that in, uh, in those early 1900s at Yale, 25% of the student body was involved in daily Bible study and prayer meetings around the campus. In Portland, Oregon, 240 major stores closed from 11 to 2 each day to enable people to attend prayer meetings. So think about that. What if the whistle blew every day, and you know it was a time when people could leave work and come here for a two-hour prayer? I-, I could go on and on and just tell you of these movements of God. I mean, people were, people didn't have even didn't even have to go to church. People were just walking along the road and they came under the conviction of God that they needed to turn back and and to again fear God. Well, this morning, our time is up, but I want to just say this in conclusion. We live in a day where all of us experience the loss of the fear of God, and apart apart from a return to the fear of God and the sobering thing is we can't sit here and point fingers at the culture because this is a failure of the church. And we need to be a part of the solution to this problem. And the solution to this problem comes back to the words of Solomon. is that we need to seek the statutes and the commands and the the wisdom of God and His Word. And we need to seek it as treasure. And as we do that, we will see the glory of God and see the majesty of God, and, and at least in our own lives... And in our own church, return to this fear of God. Of of just seeing him for who he is and in his greatness. And we can pray that God would have mercy on us and bring such judgment upon our country that we once again turn to him. Father, we thank you this morning for, for your word. You see how important this is. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Father, without your wisdom, we destroy ourselves. We are we become such fools, thinking that we are wise. So, Father, we lift up our our country today. We lift up our churches. Father, we confess to you our we have relied on the wisdom of man not the wisdom of God, but we have lost this vision of you. And so we pray, Father, by your grace, that you would bring us back to that place. Lord, teach us what it means in each of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Father, bless the gifts as we give them this morning. Your name would pray.